Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And before we get to today's featured interview, I'd like to let you know that longtime saloner Trevor Oswald of East Forest now has his own podcast, and a few weeks ago he and I had a conversation that is, uh, well, it's now online in his podcast series. And I'll link to that in today's program notes at psychedelicsalon.com. Also, I want to be sure that you remember that next Monday, May 7th, at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time, is our next Psychedelic Salon first Monday night Zoom conference. And you're invited to join in or just lurk if you prefer. And I'll put a link to uh, the information about that in today's program notes as well so that uh, you don't need to install the Zoom application. You just uh, click the link and join us through your browser. As you know, uh, I've been hosting these Zoom conferences on every Monday night for the Patreon supporters of my writing projects, and I'm pleased to say that out of these conversations, a few things have begun to happen. And one of those things is that our little group has decided that there needs to be a single place where we can all find information about festivals, conferences, uh, local groups, and other items of interest to the worldwide psychedelic community. Now, in the past, I tried to consolidate the Arrowwood and MAPS conference listings, along with information that I received from some of our fellow saloners. But, as I told my Zoom friends, it just took more time than I was able to put into that little project. But uh, our group came up with another solution, and so what we've decided to try is to post all of that information in a spreadsheet that's available on Google Docs. And as of now, we've listed over 20 conferences, 10 festivals, 7 local societies, 3 social events, 3 initiatives, 7 podcasts, and 12 online resources. And they're all in separate tabs, so it's easy to find. And uh, I'm sure that there are many more such events that need to be listed, so we've made this document public that anyone can add to. And yes, we're aware that uh, somebody may vandalize that document someday, but until that happens, we're going to leave it open and available for you to add to the document as well. The link is uh, one of those long gobbledygook URLs, so I've added it to the uh, top of the PsychedelicSalon.com homepage under the title Events of Interest. So uh, check it out and add to it if you can. So uh, now I'm ready to listen to today's interview that Lex Pelger did with Noah Potter, who is a lawyer specializing in psychedelic law. Just to uh, put this into a little better perspective, I began practicing law myself in Houston, Texas in the summer of 1972, which was just one year after that criminal, Richard Nixon, had begun the so-called War on Drugs. And at the time, my partner and I specialized in real estate and business law, and so we would refer any prospective clients who were charged with uh, crimes, well, we'd refer them to other lawyers who specialized in criminal law. Now, not long after I joined the firm, one of my partner's clients had a friend who was charged with possession of marijuana and who needed an attorney. Well, (laughs) my partner spent the best part of several days calling friends and acquaintances trying to find a lawyer to refer this person to. Because back then, it was really that difficult for us to find even a single lawyer who was willing to stand up and work on drug-related cases. Now, here we are 46 years later, and we're about to listen to an interview with a lawyer who focuses on helping people who become victims of the government's war on people who use drugs that aren't patented by those companies who are donating the campaign funds. You know, the bribes to the uh, Congress people who are responsible for keeping this insane policy of prohibition in place. Well, it's been a long road to get here, and there's a long way to go, but I think we should all be very grateful for people like Noah Potter who are willing to represent people like you and me. So now here's Lex Pelger who will introduce today's program. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Today we talk with Noah Potter, a lawyer and psychedelic activist out of New York City. 
He studied addiction while at Columbia University, and from there he began to discover the psychedelic culture of New York. That gets him mixed up into one of the great activist hubs of America when he meets the Yippies of Nine Bleecker Street. There he learns from old cowboy heroes like Dana Beale and gets to see the glory days of New York City activism. Noah went on to become a respected lawyer who was asked to join the New York City Bar Association's Committee on Drugs and the Law. You can see his writings on psychedelics and the law at his blog, New Amsterdam Psychedelic Law. Today we'll hear about how he came to his interest in this topic and his musings about what the legal framework might look like in a world with a more sane policy towards psychedelics and other psychoactives. Noah, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it a lot. So you were a poli-sci major at Columbia, and you actually were interested in drugs even at that time. You wrote your senior thesis on substance abuse treatment? Yep. Those were the days. I graduated in 95, and uh, the world was different. There, was no, there were no uh, blogs or podcasts or um, psychedelic societies or psychedelic storytelling or anything like that. It was obviously, you know... There's, I'm, I'm from the world of before the internet, if you can imagine such a thing. Uh, I had gotten caught up in a, a resurgence of psychedelics in the, the late 80s, 89, 90. Um, you know, deep in the, after uh, eight years of Reagan and in the middle of four years of Bush Sr., really bad scene um, all around. And uh, <clears throat> I, I had the perception that um, in, in a sense, I guess, there's really not, my, I came out of, uh, it's very highly subjective and idiosyncratic, not recommending this to the general public, but, you know, I came out of it with the conclusion that if you're not going to engage with psychedelics, whatever movement attempt to better the world um, you know, uh, save people, save living things, engender compassion, uh, uh, minimize destruction in the environment, try to keep everybody safe and alive, all that kind of thing. You know, you're you're going to be limited if you don't engage a psychedelic paradigm. Now, I wasn't thinking in those terms. I was thinking more in terms of, you know, there's all this important work to be done uh, in in so many different causes. And uh, but where's the psychedelic stuff? And I was, I, I didn't really discuss it with the idea so much that psychedelics were important as a, uh, in a sense, a political consciousness and a political organizing phenomena. Um, I don't know, just, you know, I didn't know the people who were, you know, who were, who were on that wavelength. Um, and it was very rare, you know, psychedelic, the drug policy issues were, were not, were not above the surface. It was only very recently my, in my sense that drug policy is being recognized as a legitimate uh, perspective and framework for, um, you know, for social justice and uh, sustainable development slash lifestyle on the planet. Um, so, and I was not aware of, uh, of MAPS, for example, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies had been formed a few years before, but and I'm a kid in Southeast Pennsylvania and I, there's no internet and I don't, you know, it didn't occur to me to go out and look and see who else was organizing. Now there were other people out there. I didn't look for them. Um, you know, like I said, it didn't occur to me when I got to, when I got to uh, college, um, in my, I guess in the, excuse me, spring, early summer of my sophomore year, I encountered, uh, the Ibogaine movement, the Ibogaine legalization movement in the form of Dana Beal in, in New York City. Um, and I became aware of, uh, I became aware of a sense political organizing and uh, this like, you know, political consciousness that had been beaten down and driven underground. And at that point, I said, wow, I got this great opportunity to do stuff. Now I have a reason for my education. And so I began doing research uh, I researched and wrote on several issues as an undergraduate and as I finished off in my junior and senior year. And what was it like to be exploring something like substance abuse treatment at a place like Columbia that can be a little bit more on the conservative side around things like this? You know, I, I kind of like ran with a radical crew 
my time there. I mean, I was I was not hanging out with like you know straight and normal people. And the thing is, there's a very strong anti-authoritarian uh, population, a critical and activist population. There's lots of that going on. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, even dating farther back into the 60s, a long tradition there. So I, I wasn't really, I wasn't dealing with any kind of conservative perspective. And people I was with whom I was just interacting were generally very positive on on uh, the issue of, of, of drugs, shall we say. I mean, yes and no, because the thing is that the straight left, I mean, the campus, there was, you know, there was, there was a straight left. There wasn't really much of a, uh, you know, alternative um, style, you know, it was very, very straight, um, kind of, um, political orientation. And so we didn't talk, you know, drugs wasn't an issue. Drugs was, was subsidiary to other issues like class and race, but it didn't have its own independent identity. But nonetheless, you know, there wasn't no problems there with the, the, the population. And I, uh, did my study, um, uh, in, you know, I, I was an independent study basically, from, from my own credit, um, that I, I had a uh, political science advisor. No problem there. I mean, it's a, it's a policy issue. It's a somewhat obscure, you know, ob- it's like an obscure backwater. So, you know, no problem with doing research on it. And so how was it then finding this community around cannabis and psychedelics after your study? Well, no. As the, I'm saying that the it was the encounter with uh, with Dana and the surviving elements of the Yippie movement and the drug drug organizing. It was that's what gave me the the, the focus, and that's where I said, okay, let me do something with my time here. So, you know, if I hadn't encountered the activists, it wouldn't have kicked me off to do the the things that I did subsequently uh, in my education. And what I've been attempting to do now with activism, I simply wouldn't have gone there because I, you know, I, I guess I, I needed to see the history and that there had been organizing before me, and there was this, you know, it was a this, this hidden world with lots of opportunity to do things. Um, so, but when I encountered them, it was like it was like being, you know, it was quite an amazing experience. Uh, in you know, to be experiencing New York City in the um, in the 90s, right, as opposed to now, it's become Disney World, um, and deal with, you know, interact with um, long-term, committed, serious uh, activists and organizers, and and to to come into contact with the network of people in the cannabis legalization movement. I mean, Dana is highly networked, I and mean, he's one of the the senior, the founders. So all kinds of people were passing through Nine Bleaker, and I think the ability to you know, I became aware of this network, and I became aware of uh, the un- the movement, the the cannabis legalization movement of the '70s that had to go underground under the uh, the 12 years of the Republican just um, you know total zero tolerance militarized uh, policy. Um, and I said, "Wow, this is amazing! There's a hidden, a totally hidden history." You know, and and, to, and actually, I would say that even now, I mean, to to a very significant extent now, I don't think people are aware of the heritage and what transpired, you know, prior to 2012, for, let's say, or prior to 2000. I mean, prior to, wow, 2000 was a million years ago. Ah, this is a great wave of legalization. 2000 was a big deal. Then it was 2012, and it was all, it was always going to happen, and then it was, you know, it was just a matter of time, and et cetera, et cetera. It was like, well, you know, there's a lot of stuff that transpired before then. And so there was the, the remnants of the 70s movement, and it was, you know, I, in a way, it was really quiet for a while because the the, the domestic situation around was so grim, but you know, in drugs in particular, um, that there wasn't really a lot to do there. You were like in serious lockdown. I mean, Ethan Nadelman, I think, started um, getting public in his, with his analysis in the in the mid '80s and into late '80s, but you know, it was like few and far between. Uh, he was just about the only person who I can remember engaging in the public space. I mean, was the first person to really, to, to, you know, crack, cross through into, uh, into public discourse. Um, but, but, you know, anyway, that, so the answer to the question is, it was an amazing, liberating, enlightening experience. I felt like I had been reborn, in a, you know, to like have my eyes open. Wow. Um, and just a quick sign up for uh, people who don't know, Ethan Nadelman is, became the founder of the drug policy, later known as the Drug Policy Alliance, and one of the major movers and shakers. But that Noah got to interact with Dana Beale, who is one of the most colorful, and I think 
I mean, he can he can drive some people crazy because he's bullheaded, but it also means he's the reason that so much has changed. And so I was wondering if you yeah. could tell us more about Nine Bleecker Street, that you know, kind of infamous center of cannabis and other types of activism in New York. What can I say? There's there's no way to describe it. You know, it's like it's like the 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 fabled the fabled like Camelot, the mystical the mythical mystical place that was in you know, words don't do it justice. It just, it just was. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, it was like living in the epicenter of, of radical history. I mean, yeah, don't really don't know what to say. I mean, you know, you, you had to be there. It was just, it was, it was a, um, a, a teleport. It was a portal into another, another world, another time um, to like be plugged into I guess you know the an, an authentic manifestation of the of the hardcore '60s radical culture in New York City. It was it was it was all that you know. I mean, people coming and going from all over the country, all over the world. People just show up, you know. They're hey, you know, hey, is Anna there? Um, and uh, you know the the ability to participate in those conversations and. Of all different kinds of people, some some people whose names you know people who just pass through and the big recollections. Um, you know, there was activism. There were people Scott, and, and it was like you know, it's it's a yippy place. So I mean, one of the thing one of the things that you know, not to link the thoughts, but you know, if you're going to be in the drug, at least back in the day before everybody and his brother you know joined the the movement, you had to be kind of off in a sense to be part of the drug scene because it's just like, you know, that's the whole definition of it. You're in the zone of political organizing around the people who are off the charts in terms of, uh, cultural identity and, uh, and sensibilities. And so, you know, and, and so, um, so there's a lot of characters who floated through. Um, it was, it was chaotic. It was totally beaten down. I mean, it was like, I don't know if, I think Dana did vacuum the second floor. I have a vague recollection of it, but there were cats everywhere, you know, because Dana and Alice kept a, cat, uh, a house full of cats. They're all over the place. Um, you know, there were the old, the old overthrow newspapers lying around. I and mean, I actually didn't realize how many overthrow newspapers and Yepster Times there were until we had to uh, clear out the house in 2014. Uh, you know, because there was the, the to the, I don't you know know if people know what Nine Bleaker was, but Nine Bleaker was the headquarters of the uh, latter era, the era of the Yippie movement. Um, you know, when a whole crew of people came in after Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Um, so, but it was it was a part of it, it was a a stop. It was a one of the houses in the network of old of new left houses around the East Village. So. You know that's that's the the background on that, but it ended up that ended up going into foreclosure. And I I worked on the attempted to I attempted to intervene uh, a little bit late in the process. Fortunately, we didn't get very far. Um, you know, it was a very very difficult situation, and the 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 plaintiff got the place through through the foreclosure. Um, but in the process, and, and we needed to to clear out the place. So I mean, it was like an amazing excavation of of ancient artifacts and materials. Um, but part of that was to find these just giant stack upon stack upon stack of Yipster Times, Overthrow magazines. And there were like, you know, literature from all different eras that was, was stacked up and lying around, and, you know, old posters from, from radical protests against Reagan and um, throughout the 80s. What a time. Um, and so then from your, your vantage point in New York City, what was it like to watch drug policy and cannabis and psychedelics start to come to the forefront, especially legally? I mean, it's a great, it's, well, I mean, I don't you know to break up the question a little bit. I mean, to, the, to, see, to see the movement grow, to see it evolve is a very exciting thing. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like, hey, you got friends now, we got company here. There's all this stuff going on. You can like, you know, kindred spirits. And that, you know, I, I was doing a lot of different things. I was working on, you know, my career. I was trying to do the uh, activism engagement kind of, you know, as I could and with a, a professional and a family schedule. Um, 
but my, you know, I, I think I was fairly well clued into what was going on um, from like, you know, 2004, 2005, when I got back into drug policy, um, uh, up through, you know, the, the few years that I was um, uh, the chair of the committee, uh, the Committee on Drugs and Law at the City Bar Association. But my perception is it was around, it was like fe- February, April, May, whenever open cannabis had their first meeting. And this is just my perspective. There might have been stuff going on, like, you know, you might have been doing the stuff, I'm sorry to say, that was really cutting edge and I just missed it because I wasn't networked. Um, but my, my recollection is that right early, like spring of 2014, just like all hell broke loose. And all of a sudden there was open cannabis, there was, uh, there was Occupy Weed Street, there was High and Y, there was Cannabis and Hemp Association, there was um, MJBA was doing stuff. It was like, boom, it was like, you know, and, you know somebody, had, somebody had dropped the green bomb, like in uh, the Aronofsky's Noah movie, right, where he throws the seed and the, and the huge forest sprouts up or some variation thereof. It was like all of a sudden places bursting at the seams with uh, cannabis activism. And, like, you know, and then Women Grow comes in on top of that. Cannabis Cultural Association. Joe Bondi has a, 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 a podcast going every Friday. Um, it's very inspiring. It's a great thing to see. Um, you know, I mean, I, I guess, I guess I have. It's it's wonderful. It's re, it's really great to see the activism. And there's like there's a movement now. I mean, you know, the 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 goal. I would think that as a general for a political organizer, your goal is to unite your people. You know. I mean, that was one of the, that was the very first thing that Dana said to me, like, you know, I mean, early on, he said, uh, you got to basically divide your opposition, build a coalition, um, you know, and that's it. That's the name, the name of the game. Um, or, you know, I think he said, let your, your idea build a coalition. Like, that's what it's about. It's about unifying people to the extent possible to work towards a common goal. Now, I will say you know, a thousand distinctions. That was the message of the guy who was organizing Charlottesville. The message was unite the right. It's like, hey, guys, let's figure out how we're going to get to where we want to go. We all have common interests. You know, your, your enemy is my enemy. And, you know, we have stuff in common. Um, so that's kind of the name of the game. Whoever, whichever leader can arise and unite the, unite the nobles will be the king, I guess, or the new king. So in, you know, that's, Part of the question, I think, certainly for cannabis, uh, I mean, the entire drug policy reform movement, um, now cannabis has gotten so big and multifaceted and multi, um, c- consists of so many constituents, it's like, it's, it's, it's complicated. But it's not so bad, I think, because I think the dangers are so present and potent that people more or less, like, want to back each other. I guess, I know, sticking together, I would think. Um, perceiving that there, there's still a clear and present danger, um, but the um, you know the, it's good it's good to have this this movement this population. Uh, I think it's it's really a critical time in New York, and the great to the extent that it's possible to organize together in some kind of coordinated way. It's a critical moment in terms of the evolution of drug policy here or the potential evolution, depending on what happens with the legalization bill uh, that's, that's pending, Liz Kruger's proposed legislation. Um, or, yeah. um, so it's, it's a great thing. I think the potential is great. And I guess that to connect to the ideas, what I was saying earlier, is that I, to the, the people, I have a concern that people don't know history. And I was definitely, I was concerned going into the election. Uh, all through the summer and fall of 2016, is that people don't know that you can have a, a, a bear market, right? Things can come down. You go, things go up, things come down. Things can come down hard and, and shatter. Um, and adult people don't, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I mean, maybe, you know, I don't get out enough and there are people who are totally onto this and this is a subject of, you know, common subject of conversation. I just missed it. Um, but, you know, I don't think people understand how there was a coup in a sense within i mean there's there's a dramatic backward back and forward movement in drug policy reform and drug policy reform is, is an amazing little petri dish of weird ebbs and flows because you're the, you're the intersection 
between mental health, criminal justice, international policy. It's, it's like this, it's a very like volatile area. Um, but you know, there was, there was a, people thought cannabis legalization was coming down. And that's the problem. People are like, yeah, it's going to be legal because they were in the Carter administration. And all of a sudden, boom, basically there's a coup in a sense. And the, their, their opposition, the, what was going by the name of the parents movement, and then became the prevention movement. So in a sense, you have the political doctrine, or you have a, a public health doctrine of prevention that gets turned into a repurposed as public order and public safety, right? Enforced by the police and the, the criminal justice system. Um, so, but they had a constituency that came in that organized the, the parents movement that morphed into something huge, um, basically found a bunch of allies in the federal government, right? And they are all like getting really friendly in after, after the election. And that's what part of my concern now is that if you, if you have any recollection of Reagan, um, things didn't happen immediately, you know? This is year one of Trump. We're just like, we haven't even been through a full year of Trump. We're literally like 11 months. We're in the first 11 months of the administration. Um, and, you know, people don't remember. It was basically like a counter-revolution. Reagan came in as a white backlash counter-revolution against the chaos of the, of the six, this, quote, chaos of the 60s and 70s. You know, I mean, I don't know if you know, people are seeing where we are as this a wave coming at this like, you know, a ripple from the massive shock of the counterculture, uh, <clears throat> psychedelic culture of the 1960s. Um, you know, people laughed at Kevin Sabat. Sabat. Like, Can you, you don't laugh who he at is? Kevin Sabat. I mean, Kevin Sabat was like the, the loyal opposition throughout all of the, the Obama administration. Like the, in this, you know, this big, the, 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 um, I don't know, the total transformation of the public image of cannabis that happened over the eight years of the Obama administration. Kevin Savage was the last person out there. He's not the only person in the anti-cannabis movement. There's a whole crew of people in the anti-cannabis movement. But he was the only one out there whom I was there was really making a public face. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, the counterpart to Ethan Nadelman in the sense of like the person who is the go-to guy is always quoted. He's the expert. Um, so you don't laugh at him because he's still there. He's still organizing and that, you know, you don't, don't, don't believe your own propaganda and, and discount your opposition just because you seem to be doing well. Um, so you gotta be, you gotta move. And I mean, I guess that's why the issue is it's time to start really thinking through and manifesting the common, what common points there are in drug policy. Um, the drug policy field, the, the reform, the drug policy reform movement. Yes, and that's that's part of the reason I really enjoy your work, and especially writing on the blog, is it gets into that nitty gritty of what this policy might actually look like. We have a lot of people like, well, people shouldn't be going to jail for it, and it should look like this, and it should be free and open. It's like, well, there is there is what might be perfect in a utopia, but there's also what can be accomplished in this atmosphere and under this kind of uh, legacy of laws that we have. And you've been writing about this a lot lately. And I'd be curious to hear mm. more about your writings about the – even just the questions that you're asking about what psychedelic law might look like and what fields of law mm. be involved. Okay, yeah. Um, well, thank you for all the, the kind words. Um, and you're right. It, it's more questions – I mean, I guess that's what I got. I mean, I have, I have great regrets that I don't have more proposals, specific proposals to make. Um, I mean, that's, that was a time management issue and being like, you know, on the ball, ready for this moment. Um, but, you know, better late than ever, I guess. And so it is, it's a set of questions. And I guess, look, I call the blog um, an open source thought experiment and, um you know, and it's what it is. It's an open source thought experiment. I mean, it's a collaborative matter um, to ask the questions. You know, right? I mean, a, a question is a statement, right? You just you just turn it around. You know, you know, the, you say, you, "What's the issue here? What's this? What you know? What do we make of this? How do we handle this? What does it mean? How are we supposed to react in a particular situation?" And then you take the question mark away and you turn it into a sentence. 
And you might just have a bunch of drop-down lines as you start projecting what you do in a particular situation. Okay, so without, you know, to, to reel it back from being more poetic there, um, for people who the, 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 excuse me, the perspective that it should just happen naturally, you know, government does need to get involved. This is a matter of my right to do this. Uh, civil liberties, um, etc. I mean, I hear it, and I understand you. And you just, you know, characterize it, I guess, as, as somewhat utopian. And yeah, sure, exactly, it's utopian. But you know, more in my line of thinking is, does anything work that way? Like, oh, you know, there's freedom of speech. There's like speech laws. You know, you really don't get to say whatever you want. There are legal limits on what you're allowed to say. So you can tell me that. You know, like powerful psychoactive substances, and the government's like, "Oh, oh, my bad. Oh, you wanna, you wanna drop acid and play in the middle of the train tracks? I'm sorry. You know, I, it's only me. Who am I to get involved? Or whatever. You wanna get behind the wheel of a car? Oh, you know, hey, go for it. You know what? I don't really get involved in such things. Well, obviously, those are insanely extreme cases. But who, in their right mind, is going to allow a society? I mean, a society to function without any normative rules governing the, co- the, the, the actions, people's actions around the powerful psychoactive substances. What? Okay. So, but, you know, and, and, and I actually, I'm, I have a, I wrote an article for uh, Chakruna, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, a really phenomenal um, website run by uh, uh, Bia Labacha in uh, Brazil, I wrote, a, I wrote a piece, I expect this, I understand it's going to run fairly soon, uh, and um, on the, the uh, psychedelic markets of the future. And um, I mean, you know, just to quote myself, I guess, or to like to uh, speak out the analysis, law, I would say, is a set of relationships. Whenever you have two phenomena, when you have one phenomena, there you don't need a law, because it just is, the thing is. Once you have two phenomena, they relate to each other. And I would venture to say, I would humbly submit, that the name of that relationship is law. You know, you have laws of physics. I mean, it's not my area. I'm just going to get poetic again here. But the law is a relationship. Um, So people relate to each other. And my example is, if you've ever lived with anybody else, there are probably rules that govern the bathroom. Right and the kitchen, and you know, some things you're allowed to leave in the sink, and some you're not. So there's a law there. There's two people. There's people, two, three, however many people interacting each other, and they need to set up a set of norms. Right? I mean, unless we're all, I don't know, I don't know what the psychological term is for being entirely in your own head and nobody else exists. Right? Then you're conscious of other people, and so you. I mean, I guess so. Okay, maybe could be. I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying, like literally, like nobody else exists. You know, there's like people talking at me, but I'm the I'm, I'm everything. Okay. So that, if that's sociopath, good. So that's the term. Um, so, but otherwise you got to formulate norms, which may become standards, which may become rules, which may become law, which may could, I don't know, like, you know, you, you, you pass from informal relationships to highly formal relationships. So relation, relationships that are so formal that if you act in a certain way, the other person has the ability to drag you into court and get a judgment against you and, like, you know, take your properties. Like, it gets to be that level of severity. Criminal law, ooh, that's pretty severe. But you, ha- you have criminal laws for reasons, you know? I mean, are you going gonna to tell me that, nobody intervenes in the bullying when the big kid is bullying the little kid, like you, you don't get involved. No, you get involved. You're like, Hey, stand against the wall or whatever. Well, that's, you know, and I'm sorry, it's a, it's a gross uh, reductionist or like, you know, characterization. Maybe people are not ready to hear, but in a, in an ideal sense, a premise of the system, that's criminal law. Now, I mean, that's the theory of what's going on. You know, the, 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 the just impulses of society are being applied as necessary to maintain order. Okay, so that's not what happens. But that's, that's, the, uh, that's the premise. And again, you know, just going, walking through different possibilities of um, what it means to have law and regulation in society. 
So the short answer, I'm sorry, this is a bit extended. The short answer is um, I don't see a totally unregulated market. Like, and, and, I, and I just, it, it doesn't, I, it, there is no market like that. And, and, and this, again, to go to the point, you know, the piece I wrote is psychedelic, psychedelic markets of the future, because I'm, I'm thinking and I'm speaking in terms of markets. You know, we've discussed in the, in the, in the past, um, you know, the idea that the, the perspective, and, and the point is, is not the idea that it's not to be a monopoly, not to dictate this is the way, this is the way, folks, you know what? But there's, there's a, a multitude of perspectives and I'm offering this one to say there's an, there are other perspectives. You know, there's there's a criminal, there's a racial equity perspective. There is, uh, you know, a, 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 a um, civil liberty, you know, civil rights, the the uh, cognitive liberties perspective. Um, there's economic option. There's cannabis. A lot of this stuff is playing out with cannabis. It's just kind of starting to manifest in the psychedelic scene. I mean, I guess I guess I don't get out there so much, so I'm seeing it happen from afar. But I'm seeing it a lot more, uh, a lot more discussion. Um, but it's really played out a lot in cannabis. So you have multiple um, paradigms, but I'm going to offer another paradigm, and that's the market regulation paradigm. And that the the inquiry for all of the all of well, let's, we're talking about psychedelics, and this is across the board for all psychoactive substances. And really, it's about all products that travel in commerce. And you know, I put out the analysis before that. A psychedelic substance is, it can be many things, but from a really, really technical perspective, it's merchandise, it's a, a good that travels in commerce. People make it, they buy it, they're wholesalers, they, they distribute it, people, the individual consumer purchases it and uses it. Right? It's a good that travels in commerce, all different kinds. It could be sacred, it could be a sacred good that travels in commerce. Um, it could be, well, you know, different possibilities. But that's the, I would offer as the context because you know, I, now that's kind of the way things work. I mean, there's, um, you know, real estate is not a good to travel to commerce, but there's, um, you know, there's market for real estate and, and it gets, it gets, there's, there's some controls on it. Uh, some people would like more, but, you know, there are, I mean, all of these products and services are governed by, um, you know, rules it, governing, I would say, the, the marketplace. So psychedelics likewise. And you come at it from the market perspective, I think it's easier to break down the system into manageable parts. Uh, and again, you know, can, the cannabis evolution in cannabis is a very helpful model. I'm not going to say that it's, it's the model, and, and I think that's a, a problem, potentially problematic fallacy to assume that all substances must be treated the same. One model must work for all in some way. Uh, I think that needs to be checked out and assessed first before making such a categorical conclusion. So the, the, the market focus that we see from cannabis, uh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of issues that come out. On the user side, the... Uh, question of, of testing for impairment using a motor vehicle. That's a, that's a demand side consideration. You know, the individual consumer pesticides um, is on the supply side. Um, you know, the, 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 the supply sides get you know, the whole evolution of the supply side. What we see that is a big, the big deal is the, the, the legalization of the supply side. Um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I guess pesticides is the one that comes to mind primarily. Um, you know, there's oh, there's a, the public safety concern on the supply side in terms of the uh, the the inability to use the banking system on the part of the businesses. You break out, identify who the people are, the players in the market, and look at how they interact. And you know, the fundamental policy concern is risk. What everybody wants to know is. Is this going to hurt me? Okay, you know, it would be great if it helps me, but I definitely don't want it to hurt me. So, like, how could this, how could this thing that you're proposing to introduce my life hurt me? So, you know, and there's a, a lot, uh, a lot of work to be done on that. There's why work. There's work to be done on that in terms of cannabis, all the more so in terms of in terms of psychedelics. So, if you're, you know, you can focus in and make realistic assessments about 
potential risk. I mean, it's the only the polite thing to do. I mean, you know, the psychedelic movement of whatever size it is shares the, billion, the planet with 7 billion people and presumably you're asking them to make really significant, allow for significant changes in society. You know, you kind of owe it to them to like, you know, hey, this is good. This could be good for you. It's not going to be bad for you. So, you know, but, but the, the, the format for doing that, I think, is through the market regulation model. And this is not original because... I haven't looked at the literature lately, but when I was studying this as an undergraduate, the paradigm of drug control on the controller side, at least at the time, is market regulation. Because how do they analyze what they're doing? They analyze it in the classic terms of the market, supply and demand. The federal drug policy agency array, which is AKA the budgetary arrangement and who gets a piece of the money, was broken out into two concepts, supply reduction and demand reduction. Everybody knows you're trying to like, you know, well, it's actually interesting they said reduction, not elimination. That's kind of funny. But you know, that, was the, that was the term, that was the, the verb, reduction. You, the supply, supply reduction focuses on the huge expanse, you know, the, the array of phenomena that go into bringing the product to the market. You got the, you got the supply side, you got the product, and you got the, the demand side of the consumer. And the goal is to get from the supply side to the demand side. And the goal of the government is to interrupt that flow of the product, optimally at the source. So you go and, you know, like spay, 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 uh, spay, excuse me, spray paraquat on ganja fields in Mexico. Okay, so that's, that's, that's really, you know, that's pretty direct. Go kill the plant. Um, interdiction at sea, et cetera. That, you know, um, cops on the street. That's all in a rubric of, uh, well, maybe not the cops on the street, but the cops who are breaking up the distributorships, the distributors, distribution um, rings. Okay, that's about stopping the product from getting to the market. That's the, that's the supply reduction. Demand reduction is the name for dare. And uh, just say no in partnership with Drug Free America, people get funding, you know, parents like, you know, the drug testing, um, putting people in jail, you know, that's a form of demand reduction because you're, you know, you're um, uh, disincentivizing them, you, you know, supposedly from getting involved, um, you know, uh, forfeiting people's so, uh, benefits, right? No, that's demand reduction because you're trying to encourage people, hey, don't do this. This is bad. You know, don't consume. Um, so that's, that's, I'm actually in a sense just working off the government paradigm. You know, I'm, I have no shame in that. I think it's the appropriate thing to do. Work off the, you know, analyzing the, I mean, you, you want to move beyond that. I mean, the first, but the first thing to do is to engage with the, the prevailing, the, the governing paradigm. So, uh, you know, and then go with it, turn it into something else. I and mean, that's actually, I think, the goal. Um, but start with, start with the paradigm. And, I, and in, in a sense, so it's, it's good. You know, that's what, how they analyzed it. They, um, did not analyze it in terms, when I say they, I mean, there's the great shapeless, faceless they. I mean, I'm saying colloquially, the uh, um, people who have, were you know, still around, but they were the architects, the dominant uh, voice and orientation on drug policy up until, I guess, say 2008, or really more 2012, when Obama, I think, was free to do what he wanted with drug policy. Um, they didn't phrase the thing as, hey, there's this like amazing substances, like unbelievable, like, wow, you know what they can do? Now let's figure out how to, you know, figure out what we can do with them. Something's positive. No, they didn't go there. They, they went somewhere else. And the somewhere else they went, the paradigm is um, um, the market, the, 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 their own version of the market. So we turned that around. We turned, okay, so fine. So you had one version of a market. You wanted to maintain an illegal market. So if we're not going to do the illegal market anymore, well, let's, let's figure it out. You know, that again, there's, there's the supply side, supply chain, and there's the, the consumers. It is. I, I mean, it is a powerful paradigm, in it, especially because you do have to engage what the opposition is doing. But I, I also know that I... I can hear a lot of uh, people thinking out there. They um, just the antipathy to treating um, psychedelics or cannabis like this, just because they are so holy to people. Um, sometimes, hundred percent. 
Yeah, and but, and sometimes it's it's just so tricky. I actually, especially what you were saying about cannabis and being cautious about applying that directly to psychedelics, because cannabis is even weirder in the sense that it's an industrial product, it's an agricultural product, mm-hmm. it's a food product, it's a medicine, it is a uh, recreational intoxicant, it's a sacrament. Uh, psychedelics, in one sense, are are less widespread than that. They can do more weird things in your mm-hmm. brain, but they're not um, all these different things. Sure. And it's going to be absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm, yeah. Well, no. That's an. That's an. I. I think that's a very. Um, uh, that's a, a potent point. Um, and let me say, just jumping in on that, that I would there, and part of the the complication, is that these are all hybrid products. They don't fit any of the normal, you know, the established concept of what a product is. They just, they don't, they don't, they, that's the thing. They don't, they, they trigger, it's like they, they, it's like they trigger too many neuro, neurotransmitters. Not to be able to suppose to trigger all these neurotransmitters, you know, at the same time. It's like, oh, hey, well, what's going on here? So they don't fit easy classifications, exactly like you were saying about cannabis. You know, on the psychedelic aspect, and these problematic colloquial terms, you know, we, you and I have to sit down and figure out some terminology here, but, you know, just going with the colloquial terms, cannabis as opposed to psychedelics and psychedelics being this catch-all vague category. Um, but, but they are, um, you know, the psychedelics, I guess, also are hybrid products to the extent that you can have a substance that may be construed as sacramental or it may be construed as therapeutic. Or you might say, well, it's therapeutic because it's sacramental. Or, you know, it's, it's physical and emotional simultaneously. Like, what? Like, I didn't think you could have a drug like that. So that's the problem, is that the problem is that they, it's the, the, the proverbial breaking the mold. Um, they, don't, they don't fit. It's the, square, it's the square peg in the round hole or the other way around, whichever it is. Um, and that's... that's part of the reason for the complications we're having, I think. And let me say, people are saying, well, no, it's like, hey, you can't do this. You can't talk about my, my sacrament like that uh, or whatever. Or, you know, all of a sudden, you, oh, you want to hand the keys over to the government? Well, we have enough problems with them already. They've, you know, uh, they, they've forfeited their, they have no moral authority here. Like, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, okay, but um you know, you've you gotta you gotta do something with them. You know, and it it, it is the you know, it's engage if you can you can look at the system as being a corrupted version of an ideal, the ideal is still there. Now, if it's a bad ideal, then time to move on. If it's a good ideal or it's got the potential for good in it and you can draw that out then do that and engage with the system the belief that you can get back to positive ideals you have a positive ideal of um freedom of freedom free exercise of religion and freedom of speech etc and uh uh, freedom from unreasonable seizures searches and seizures etc okay so what's like you know great idea so how about we try to figure out how to make it happen so um if you instead of calling it a matter of the market call it a matter of availability how do you want the substances to be made available let me say one one small thing and then try to get to a, a bigger thing in a minute for example do you allow for billboards do you do you allow for branding and billboards um maybe you're not branding a product although presumably somebody could you know you know snoop dogg's proprietary version of of mdma um you know so maybe somebody does want to go there but is that do people are people okay with commercialization and promotion because you allowing it to happen you know you're letting people do their thing so is that okay or i mean does somebody step in and say no i mean and, and i guess the bigger picture and then the circle back is that my, my sense is the problem we have is that nobody can, at the moment, can really project what something like this will look like. 
it's like we're walking into the walking into the future facing backwards um and because these are all hybrid products of some kind there is going to need to be an evolution a legal evolution i suppose i mean as long as cultural evolution anthropological sociological whatever all these perspectives need to change presumably to to accommodate this new phenomena or not a new phenomena but a phenomenon of which they don't have a um a relationship in living memory um you know again this is the massive amnesia of psychoactive substances and prior you know before like the turn of the 20th century and the ascendance and dominance of biological medicine um uh and you know uh, industrial chemistry i guess um we we need to do trial and error and again it's the risk assessment um coming at it from a risk assessment perspective now as i've proposed to you in the past my question is would you want charles manson to be your trip guide you know and if you wouldn't how do you try to keep that from happening um do you need some kind of ability to do a legal and legal intervention of some kind if you find out that charles manson has become somebody become somebody's trip guide do you say hey folks let's sit down and talk about licensing criteria no people don't like the idea of a licensing but i mean look this is this is where you know i mean there's some some really nice pieces as i said i mean great stuff on check on the check from the website um um, you know, and, and to refer people to an article that uh, Professor Walsh wrote um, uh, on the topic of basically psychedelic legalization. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and I, I picked this up in my article as well. I and mean, I, you know, I, mean, I thought it was a very, very, um, you know, uh, useful starting point. Um, I'm a place, a place I wish to embellish. Um, there's already a practice, and Rick Doblin has made this, this comment, this, this observation as well. The thing about these substances is there's lots and lots and lots of people using them and like figuring out how to use them and creating living, living in subcultures. There's, there's decades of uh, user experience. When it comes to that, and that's what that's like, you know, the modern psychedelic movement, let's say, start, let's say, 1965 plus. But for the plants or the biologicals, the psychedelic biologicals, those have been around and used for thousands of years. So, like, you're going to come along and say, no, it's not safe to use. Uh, what? So the, 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 the global piece that comes out of that is that if people already have knowledge about how the thing works, then you ought to defer to their experience and their knowledge. Um, just because, like, like, there's people who have experience with it. You like not listen to them. I mean, and that's actually part of the 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 thought control construct of uh, of drug law. I mean, very specifically, to, to particular manifestation. Um, I will quote myself, and I will refer people to my piece, "Mad Men Rule You," on my uh, October 2012 piece, in which I attempt to deconstruct the DEA's legal theory for maintaining cannabis prohibition. They the way that they maintain the order, they maintain the prohibition structure, is by saying, we will consider no evidence except that what, that which we deem acceptable. I mean, which is, that's what people, you know, people do that. There's rules of evidence. But they say, you know, we're not going to consider any anecdotal evidence. You want to tell me that it, it's like, you know, but your cancer into remission? Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's kind of cute. Oh, really? You think so? Well, if you don't have a randomized double-blind clinical trial, you know, you know, please, doors that way. So, the, and that is in a very kind of cold and clinical aspect, that's the way they maintain prohibition. You can say, I don't care what you say. I want you to meet my standards. My standards require that you put out about a billion dollars to... Um, you know, to get to get a FDA approval, but you know, hey, like you know, if you really if you really care, you'll figure it out. Um, but that's um, you know, the, when I say they, again, the faceless, nameless, proverbial they. I'm talking about the you know the the, the DEA and the FDA working according to the test that's in place. Um, but that's a problem because there's lots of evidence. There's all there's experience. There's real life practical experience. 
So particularly with the with the psychedelic botanicals, or I mean, sorry, the psychedelic biologicals to include uh, animal derived um, psychedelics and fungi, um, it, it makes no sense not to consult with the people who have the direct knowledge. I mean, it's like, duh. I mean, what better source of information do you have than them? Um, and that goes to that. I mean, this is all great, like big picture flowery stuff, but in practice, what that means is you, you know, you, you uh, I mean, the, the most just neutral maybe um, concept is that of the voluntary association. You got people who get together to do something together, or they've got some kind of common interest. They're a voluntary association of people. So I guess the paradigm uh, of the, the social club or a collective, I guess, you know, in a sense, that's what it is. It's you, if you have entities, the groups of people self-monitoring with, with uh, some kind of best practices, I mean, it, it, it's got to be open to some kind of scrutiny. You can't tell me if you're going to have a group of people who can go get together, you know, set themselves up in a, in a space, members only, uh, and start dosing people, and nobody's allowed to know what goes on there. I just, you know, hey, I mean, it's great, it's magical, it's beautiful, I love it, but I'm just not seeing the state going for that right now, at least not now, I mean, maybe someday, you know, but, I mean, we can contemplate that reality, but it's the, the, the skeleton for that doesn't exist yet, and if you're realistic, I, I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say that's, you know, judgmental and so on to say realistic, you know, my bad. But I mean, I think looking at the relative balance of power and, you know, who has the penitentiaries and who has the criminal forfeiture laws, et cetera, you know, and who has the guns um, and everything else, like, there's a power imbalance. So if you want to make this thing happen, then work with it. Um, and the be adapted in the form of, I guess, best practice organizations. And there is a group now, a legal network forming uh, under the auspices of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, you can talk to Natalie Ginsburg and Ismail Ali. Um, that so, you know, and then I guess you know, I, I, I mean, there's people. I mean, I don't know if we have a psychedelic accounting association. I mean, maybe we should. I don't know if it's really necessary. You know, I don't know if accounting is like really kind of on that 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 wave that wavelength, but. Um, <clears throat> doctors, social workers, lawyers, um, you know, I mean, there's a, a gentleman, I don't remember his name, here in Brooklyn, he's an architect, and he's thinking in terms of psychedelic-friendly structures. I mean, I guess, like, particularly for, you know, environments in which to, we should have a psychedelic experience, whether, whether overt, like, quote, therapeutic or, quote, sacramental, and again, we come down to the question of the, of the relationship between the two, but great, you know, but you, you offer your best practices that have been used in a collective. Um, so in a sense, it's been, it's been tested. You have some kind of test, not just some person who shows up is like, hey, this, this thing I do off by myself. Um, but when there's activities and standards and practices um, that, that, uh, that are uh, in, in diffused in the society, group of people, then it's, you know, say, hey, look, you know, we'll show you how it's done. Anyway, so to go, you know, that, that, and that's, I think, part of the, we can't, we can't really conceive the future. We just got to like build it one step at a time, but doing it cautiously because, you know, nobody wants this thing to blow up. And that's the, that's what I'm, I'm saying about the timing. This is the this is not even one year into the Trump administration. You know, there's a, a gentleman uh, sitting doing two life sentences in the federal penitentiary in um, Arizona, I think, William Leonard Picard, 
And, you know, he, he put out a book, Rose of Paracelsus, recently. And he, I mean, un, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's a plug for the book. It's like, wow. It's, that's an, it's an intense piece of literature. Um, but he, he portrays several points. The hair's breadth difference between utter dystopia, horror, and, um, you know, kind of like, you know, I had Waldman. It's a, it's a really good day. Hey. Another really good day. Wow. Hey, great. You know, love it, folks. Peace and peace and, peace and love, peace and blessings. So, um, you know, it's it's like recognize the you know the it's it could be. I mean, I, is it is it 1937 or is it 1967? You know, it could be both. It could be either. It could be neither. But. Um, <clears throat> Nobody, nobody, I assume nobody wants this thing to blow up. There's a, a big change. There's lots of possibilities. Um, but remember, things have crashed before. But, you know, so what that means is people are coming forward with knowledge and offer the knowledge, share the knowledge, and demonstrate that the phenomena of psychedelics are a net benefit uh, and not a net, a net loss or net risk, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, the people, the people, the psychedelic societies that are doing the days of the days of, of community service. Well, that's a good idea. That seems like a good idea to me. I mean, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the message. Like, hey, we're we're good. This is good. We, you know, this is uh, we're productive members of society. Uh, we're net benefit. So anyway, that's that's all. Yeah, that makes sense. And the the cyclic nature of this, it's the importance of listening to our elders. So much of this stuff is repetitive, uh, going back decades or mm-hmm. centuries. And so the last question mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you before I let you go, as someone who's been an activist and organizer, what would you say to people out there who want to get involved and want to do something? Where, what would be your recommendations for getting started on helping make a difference in your little uh, uh, niche that you might be interested in? Well, are you talking about the, this, this psychedelic law and policy thing that I've been discussing? You're talking about generally. I, I think generally. What would be your advice to someone out there who, who uh, may be young and hungry to, to do something to change the world? What advice would you have for how do you things to pay attention to, ple- people to work with, how to use their skills? It's, it's, it's difficult to answer that question because it's so individualistic. It depends on the individual, I think. I mean, obviously, every, everything does, but... Um, it depends on what age you are. It depends on where you live. It depends on what your aptitudes are. Um, you know, if you're a certain generation, like, I'm not, not, not really directly answering your question, but kind of like, you know, I'm just free associating with the idea that comes to mind. Like in a sense, um, the elderly population is, I, is really actually a very significant consideration because, you have a massive population. I mean, the whole population is aging, I guess, because of the public health uh, trends um, and longevity, longevity medicine and, and so on. Um, so, and they use a lot of meds. So maybe part of the question, I mean, this is something I think is, I, I mean, I personally think is critical, but this is something for somebody to do is to start thinking about how do you, um, how do you administer? How do you how do you administer a powerful psyche um, engaging substance to somebody who's sixty, seventy, eighty years old? Um, like try to explain to them, you know, and like like what to expect, what not to expect, and so on. I mean, hey, if somebody wants to go into you know, social work, go to social work school and try to develop that. I mean, and I'm speaking very academic terms. I mean, because obviously that's you know that's been my perspective. Um, I mean, in terms of advocacy, um, I don't know. I mean, the sky's the limit. I've always you know there should there should be a psychedelic prisoner support organization, um, you know, collecting people's stories, giving the opportunity to communicate with the outside world, um, check looking after their needs and so on. Um, you know. I mean, that's a, that's a not-for-profit philanthropic undertaking in terms of like, you know, the, the, I guess, the for-profit side, if to the extent that you're going to, if you're going to have something analogous to the, and this actually, I mean, I'm, like, I don't know how much time I have to keep going here because, you know, triggering another, another thought, 
I guess really it all comes back to the risk. You know, where is there a place where you can come and say, you know, I figured out how to handle a particular aspect of this problem. Like, you know, as I've said to you in the previous conversation, the people who are doing psych- psychedelic harm reduction work, like at, at Burning Man, uh, I haven't had direct experience, but I understand it from afar, uh, and the dance safe people who are trying to minimize risk. They're doing out, you know, harm reduction. Um, um, that's a, a prime example of saying there's a problem. I see a potential problem. I can figure out how to solve it. And, and I guess another piece of this then as well, don't that's something we discussed much earlier, is go in and try to figure out where the commonalities of interest there are between the different um, elements of the drug policy reform scene. And, you know, I mean, that's is a, I mean, I guess it's kind of like a no-brainer matter. And I'm actually going to throw something in here, and I know you know, I understand a lot of controversy about this. As to whether you treat all substances the same, you, you know, as a, you know a, whatever the you know, rationale for that, or do you distinguish between them? And I say you need to distinguish between them because they're not all the same. And part of the very significant aspect of this exercise is to be able to distinguish the substances, at least for the general public. Um, break, we must break away from the, the mental lockdown of the scheduling system and the inane scheduling uh, paradigms. <laughs> it's like, what? It was like, there's no metrics, no rationale, no accounting for the dose. Like, hello, you know, putting cannabis, LSD, and, 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 and heroin in the same legal category? I don't understand what that means. Um, so, you got to you distinguish the substances and, and, and a, at a minimum in terms of like toxicity, but let's talk, I mean, let's talk about therapeutic benefit. Let's just come at this from a perspective of like, if I come in and tell you that Ibogaine has a potential to interrupt a pattern of um, problematic use of opioids, I'm not doing this here, folks. The substances are working on each, working on and potentially against with each other. So respect that. And don't tell me that all substances are the same because they do different things. Um, it's kind of like market share. You know, the idea is you want to switch market share over from alcohol and tobacco over to cannabis and whatever else. You know, like give them a fair shot to, to do their thing in the market. Uh, I mean, that's, that's an inquiry in which someone can engage from, from all kinds of different perspectives, you know, all kinds of different disciplines. Yeah, it is, it is the hard part. There's a lot of places, but hopefully we can all work together and move the ball forward. So I want to thank hey, you for yeah, – oh, go ahead. Hey, go to law, go to, go to law school. Figure <laughs> out a way to go to law school. Seriously. Yeah, it's a, Seriously. It's a place we get, need Get people. a legal education. Yeah. 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 Um, it is. It's not my path, but I'm glad people like you and uh, and others are doing it. Our, our buddy Danny Miller as well. Um, yeah. So yeah. So thank you for your work and for your writings on the subject and and for sharing here today. Thank so. you. Okay. Yep. Be well. Bye bye. Bye bye.